it looks like we are good to go. Yeah, has been uh, watching anything to to get your sports fix? Oh, I've been watching reruns of games, man. Yeah, yeah. terrible to say. We actually, uh, my son and I went back and watched the uh, Cavs Warriors series from 2016. Like that was the greatest sports series I've ever seen. Yeah, um, yeah that was fun. So we we went back and watched some of that. Indeed. I'm an Ohio guy. I'm originally, I'm originally from Ohio. So, you know, anything, we with, like Cavs, anything with the Cavs winning is, is uh, music to my ears, man. That's right. You're a Canton guy, right? Yes, indeed. Yes, yeah. I grew up on the other side over in Lima. Oh, Lima, Ohio. Okay. Yep. You guys, you guys uh, had great football teams, man. You kicked our butts a couple of times and stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a spell there with Lima senior high. I had some, some good teams, but, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I know the struggles of, uh, of of Rust Belt communities through and through. <laughs> Absolutely. But Ken's got some good things going on. Um, we used to work pretty closely with the developer there, Steve uh, Kuhn, that's been done some cool projects okay. in the downtown. Yeah, yeah, they're doing some they're doing some pretty good stuff. Um, you know, I have a, a couple family members that work for the city there, and I've been involved in you know kind of the, the Hall of Fame vi- village and some of that stuff. Um, I, from a design standpoint and some things that I would like, I, 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 I chimed in and they were like, oh, that sounds great. And it went in a totally different direction. So hey, yeah. it's what it is. Well, we, um, we have got guests that are, are rolling in and, and I think they immediately jumped into the sports conversation. Um, ben White said that uh, from, from Missouri, it said he is <laughs> looking forward to the Alex Smith documentary on Friday. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Ellie Smith. All right. Um, <laughs> oh boy. Well, guys, it is, uh, it is five o'clock. So happy hour, uh, to everybody. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to this week and, and want to thank Joe for, um, for lining up our, our guest and, um, we'll do those introductions and this jump, jump right in. And then, uh, we're going to save a little bit of time right at the end. Cause we've got something pretty, pretty fun that we want to share with you all, um, that, that we've been kicking around. So, um, my name is Ben Muldrow. I'm with Arnett Muldrow and Associates. We are a urban planning firm based down in Greenville, South Carolina, and I live in Milford, Delaware. We are hitting a 60 mile an hour gust today. So, uh, if you see things start to shake behind us, that's, that's what's going on there. But, um, uh, I am, uh, drinking a, uh, vodka uh nice little vodka creation with a little cranberry and just trying to trying to ease into thursday evening uh been a a good long week this week so uh glad to be with everybody and uh jeff what you got going on over there in pittsburgh well um we weather sort of in between today uh day started out a little nicer but it's it's, uh, starting to rain and blow a little bit but nothing 60 mile an hour but uh yeah, I'm here in Pittsburgh. Uh, I run a firm called Revitalizer Die, um, which I say is pretty much just talking shit online. But uh, um, and I'm drinking a, a it's a Boulevardier, and uh, while that sounds fancy, it's just it's a Negroni with uh, whiskey. So the weather was was not quite Negroni weather, so I had to stiffen it up a little bit with a with a brown liquor. And but it's it's it'll serve its purpose. Nice. All right, Joe. Uh, Joe Borkstrom with, East, with uh, Place of Main Advisors in East Lansing, and uh, 
I'm the odd man out. I'm not drinking liquor. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil uh, uh, Jermaine's uh, thunder here. But uh, I'm actually having a uh, dirty blonde from Atwater Brewery in honor of my man down in Detroit. Um, but this is actually one of my favorite beers too. This is a great beer you can have one, five, seven, not even knowing. Uh, so I, I'm living myself for two. We'll, we'll know if you hit seven, so, Joe. All right. But uh, <laughs> this is a, a great beer. We enjoy it. I, I'm thrilled to have our guest on here, uh, Jermaine Ruffin. Uh, Jermaine R. Ruffin. I have not. Uh, I forget the middle. It's all good, man. <laughs> all right, man. I did, I, yeah, it's copyrighted. So we got to make sure that we get that trademark stuff. Good, on. for sure. So Jermaine Ruffin. Jermaine and I actually worked for a long time at the Michigan State Housing Development Authority uh, in, here in Lansing. And uh, a few years ago, Jermaine uh, left to spread his wings and uh, hasn't looked back, is uh, doing some great things in Detroit. But I want Jermaine to introduce himself here in just a second. And uh, Jermaine, if you will, you know, if, first of all, everyone at home, make sure you're chiming in, tell us where you're at, what you're drinking. Uh, but for Jermaine, same thing, where you come to us from, what you're drinking. But tell me, you know, one of the things, so Jermaine, uh, now, in addition to working for the state of Detroit, has his own podcast called The Streets of Planning, and he likes to talk about, you know, talks to people about their roots. So, if you do, in a little bit of an intro of yourself, you tell us a little bit about your roots, where you come from, because we'd yeah. love to claim you here in Michigan, but we know you're at heart, you're an Ohio guy, and I love yeah. you anyways. But you know, just like <laughs> you, guys, you guys can I be appreciate Ohio, it, Joe. I always tell folks, you know, the best from Ohio had 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 to go somewhere else to be the best. So. Uh, Indeed, it always happens. A lot of love to my friends in Ohio, but Jermaine, go ahead, man. Ohio is definitely a great state to be from, man. I'm proud of my Ohio roots. Um, you know, essentially, Joe, first of all, I just want to thank you all for having me on the show. Um, as I, I, I said offline a little while ago, I'm definitely fans of, of the work that you've been doing. Um, you all have been doing all across the country. And so it's it's been a lot of best practices that I've, I've had the opportunity to kind of look at it and pull and bring into the work that that I've been doing in my career. So just salute to you guys on that. Um, you know, again, uh, Jermaine Ruffin, uh, I am the host of the Streets Are Planning podcast, which is a podcast that is essentially focused on uh, community development and urban planning issues in uh, communities of color. Um, and so my primary focus is to, you know, with that podcast is essentially, you know, share best practices and share a better understanding and a cross-section of, of, of work that's being done across the country and across the globe that could be beneficial uh, for wherever you might be, right? Um, and so, so that's a, a primary focus. My, my day job, um, I am the director of development for the West region of the city of Detroit. Um, and just kind of give you a, a geographic uh, reference to that. Um, the West side of Detroit is essentially the size of, of the full city of Boston and half of Manhattan. So it's a, it's a pretty large uh, area that I'm responsible for uh, working with community um, working with developers to bring about affordable housing units and also to work along commercial corridors to, to leverage investment um, with both small businesses and attracting business uh, from outside. So I love what we're doing. It's been very busy. And the one thing I, I don't want to forget this because my friend uh, Joe knows me sometimes as, as Rose Ruffin. I'm, I, I like Rose, uh, but, but today it's, it's, it's vodka because it's a little chilly here in Detroit and uh, vodka is, is my go-to to, to stay warm. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And, and I think that um, the, we continue to see kind of a refocus back on Detroit uh, long before um, we're dealing with the current crisis. Detroit has been uh, trailblazing 
from a, a, a way of dynamic tactics. It's, it's one of those things where uh, rarely do you have a community um, that kind of sees the, the growth and then the decline and, and what do you do in the middle? Um, I was sharing with you before we started that uh, 16 years ago, I had the privilege of working with the Knight Foundation in a really great neighborhood in Northwest uh, Detroit, Grandmont Rosedale, and um, feel like I really learned a lot then about the listening. But I, I just, I would love for you to share a little bit about, um, I mean, I, I kind of feel like we touched on it maybe last week, the whole topic of gentrification and, and the mindset of enhancing a, a place while also having a definite focus on keeping the people of that place in place. Yeah. And, and I would imagine that that would be one of the, the hardest, to, you know, hardest kind of goals of a, of a revitalization in a district. But I, I'd love to hear a little bit about how y'all are digging into the meat of, of a topic like that. Yeah, sure. And it, and it comes up quite a, quite a bit, as you could imagine. Um, I think, you know, when, when coming out of bankruptcy and then trying to transition into, uh, trying to transition into development in the city of Detroit, there hadn't been a lot of consistent development happening. And those who kind of knew the game and kind of could navigate it, those were the ones who were the most successful. So those early projects um, under this, you know, uh, Mayor Duggan was just to get development going, right? Um, and some, and sometimes when you do that in a lot of different communities, it, it doesn't, you know, you don't consider, you know, the impact of what that development is because the priority is to actually get some drivers in, into these respective areas and neighborhoods. And here in the city of Detroit, downtown, like, you know, everywhere else is, is, is where that focus began. And because of Dan Gilbert's involvement in the amount of property that he owned, uh, you know, he really took on that challenge of developing in, a, in a, what was then a very tough space to develop. Um, and then, you know, but without a lot of input, um, mostly because there, you know, we hadn't gone through the exercise of setting up structures of, of you know, reaffirming the structures that actually existed in a lot of neighborhoods to begin to have that conversation. So since that point, our planning department and our office um, and the Office of, of Housing Revitalization um, we've taken that step of, of making sure that we plan first and then we figure out the developments that could plug in after we've gotten that initial community engagement piece. And one of the things that, um, you know, oftentimes in communities that have been struggling for some time, you know, when you bring in development, it's, it's a fear of, well, that's not for me because we haven't had it for so, so long, right? And, and our, our thought as economic development professionals and community development professionals is like, no, we're here to help. But if, you're, if you aren't involving them in the process and you aren't, you know, or you haven't initially gone in to say, what do you need? What would you like to see in your neighborhood? Um, that gentrification piece becomes even more amplified uh, because their voices are not at the table. And, and there's, a, there's a saying that says, any, you know, if you're a plan without us is not for us, right? So, if, if we want to ensure that Detroiters are a part of this plan, um, we needed to take a step back and, and do that engagement process, which we, we've, we've begun to do in a lot of neighborhoods uh, across the city. Great. Well, and, and I think that kind of begs a, a logical follow-up is this idea of 
as people who I know all of us have participated in many a planning exercise, uh, it's not enough to just extend the invitation. Yeah. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about tactics and engagement and, um, you know, I, I, it's it's one of those things that's weird with the communities that we work with. I, I always kind of talk about a, a regional brand that we developed in uh, Southwest Virginia, 19 counties in Southwest Virginia. And it was a multi, multi-month process, but the bulk of the work was simply talking and, and getting people to trust us long before we made the first recommendation. So uh, can you can you just share with everybody that's watching today? Like, yeah. I think a lot of people mean well, but don't necessarily either know or have the wherewithal to actually put the effort in to get the participation necessary. So what could you share for folks that are listening today on, in terms of some, some tactics that are, are good at engaging all facets of the community? Yeah, sure. Um, that's a that's a great question. I think for for us here in Detroit, trust building is 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 a is a very very important exercise wherever we are. Um, so part of that building trust is you know uh, essentially acknowledging what the community has has been through, right? Um, you know when you don't have a, a government that was responsive with you know public safety issues, or you don't have a a government that have been that's been responsive to blight issues or or, or things of that that nature, you have to come in and, and simply acknowledge that. Look, I know previously we haven't done these things. You know how did that impact you, right? Um, and that part of of building that trust that allows for for you to honestly get that feedback because if you come in and say, look, we're only looking forward and this is the plan and this is how we're going to roll, um, you're going to turn a lot of people off. Um, especially in communities of color, you know, in, in, in city, in the neighborhoods in Detroit, because there's a whole his, history to, you know, to, to these neighborhoods that, you know, a lot of us are unaware of, right, um, including myself. And so, you know, moving here, it began with one, listening to that, that those personal narratives of, about what happened in the neighborhood. Uh, two, how did that impact you? And then the final piece is actually getting towards that, that planning exercise. Um, and then it's meeting people where they are. Um, you know, I think we all know that doing an assessment of the, of the community that we're in from a, a demographic standpoint um, is, is a must. But the other, the other key component to this is understanding the, the best way to communicate with those, with, with that neighborhood or that respective corridor. Um, do they ha already have a listserv? Is it something that you can plug into as opposed to what typically happens with uh, state and, and city government um, is, we'll create something new and cool and everybody will tap into that. Um, yep. if, you're, if, if you're already, if there's already something established, uh, be respectful of that because folks took the time and the energy and the effort to set up that process. Um, and so that's a big piece that, that we've had to do here. And there are some incredible networks in, a, in the neighborhoods in the city of Detroit because they had to have it. It was because the city wasn't responsive. And so now the city's coming in and saying, hey, you know, that's that was great. We're glad you did that. Here's our process is is disrespectful. So, um, you know, we've had to learn some of those things the hard way. Uh, but once you once you have identified those things and create that trust and partnership, the planning process becomes that much more easy 
um, it's not easy, but it becomes a little uh, less strenuous because you have the trust of the folks who are there. They under they know for sure because you've invested in time and listening to their voices that their voice is going to be important throughout the process. That's great. You guys it, did it, something. Sorry, let me yeah, go ahead. No, and I don't know if it, I don't think it was necessarily your department specifically, Jermaine, but are you familiar with the ice cream truck? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little bit about this. this is a really cool idea. It's, it's 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 not yeah it's not in my department, but there is an ice cream truck, um, and I think I think this was a partnership that initially started in like Hamtramck, Michigan. Um, I have a buddy of mine I work with uh, named Jason Friedman who used to work with the with the city out there, and they have an ice cream truck, and they were essentially it was a it was a space where they set, set up a chalkboard, they had neighborhood questions. Um, they had folks who were there to, to kind of facilitate conversation with the neighborhood. Um, and, you know, so using all of those kind of like crafty and unique ways too, Joe, thanks for bringing that up, is, is another way that we've done this. I mean, we've had, you know, uh, we had a, a process in the Livernois McNichols area of the city of Detroit, where we had some developers who, who were coming in and they wanted to uh, purchase a couple of properties. And we said, well, listen, why don't we just do this process through the summer? We're going to have, you know, we'll, we'll bring out the hot dog carts, we'll bring out you know, uh, music will do, you know, kind of a, a not, it wasn't a, a block party essentially, but it was kind of like a sidewalk party uh, where we could bring folks in and have them engage them in conversation, introduce them to developers who were interested in, in you know, kind of showing their project that they, they wanted to bring to the neighborhood and getting buy-in that way, right? Um, whatever we can do to naturally bring people into the process, we're doing that. And then there's also the, the, the formal process. Great. Right. Jeff, do you have something percolating? Because I don't want to ask too many questions in a row because I I'm, I feel like I could go at this for days. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a lot to unpack, but uh, the, the trust thing, you know, really rings true. Um, that's something that is is a part of, of so many communities I work with that, that, you know, you hope to move forward, but people have no trust in in the process and government and, and almost anything and nor should they i mean they really have every right not to trust anybody because for how many decades you know you tell somebody oh this is happening and it doesn't or you you know i, I think every community is like uh, um charlie brown and they've had the football pulled away from them so many times that like i'm not doing it again i'm not doing it again so that's such a, a damaging issue and you can't really get much done until you have that and i don't think many city leaders can get that, that that understand the important work of the simple communication and trust building before they before they'll have any success doing anything because it's yeah i mean that's a complicated issue it's not something that uh you can see but it, it's certainly there so um it was interesting to hear how how you all are dealing with that well i think one of the other things i'd love to hear from a detroit perspective because i know that a lot of and we just got to speak bluntly because that's the only way you get to the point. You know, a lot of times in, in a lot of communities, they'll do an exercise, they'll do a planning exercise. They'll um, say, well, we need to make sure that we hear from African-Americans and their, their two brilliant um, responses to that are, well, I know that one, you know, we, we've had, yeah. we've had so many people tell us this, yeah. like, please, please, I, I am more than willing to participate in this input process, but just because you have heard from me, please don't make my voice yeah. the voice. And, and I think that's such a fair sentiment. And then the other thing that is 
um, kind of that secondary go-to is with the African-American community. It's like, oh, well, there's a strong communication network through your churches. And then all of a sudden it's just like that. They think that that's the, the, the way in. But what I'd like to kind of ask you on is Detroit has a unique dynamic with the, the demographics there where you have minority populations of kind of a, a blend of Iraqi and Iranian. Yeah. And um, from a Detroit perspective, how do you all go and uh, are there special communications for certain kinds of demographic subsets in the community where you just kind of know that that a particular uh, culture takes a slightly different approach to be able to, to communicate with? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, this this is one of those things that, uh, you know, like you said, you just got to be blunt about. And I think that even here in the city of Detroit, we, you know, with the predominantly, you know, African-American population, we sometimes, you know, we approach it the wrong way. Um, and, and just like you said, it's like, oh, well, I know, you know, this person is is very active in politics or very active in certain spaces or, you know, we can go to this church, which is that's a, those are key pieces, but they're not the only pieces, right? Um, and so that's where it comes to, you know, really kind of getting on the ground. And one of the things that we benefit from here in the city of Detroit is we have a department of neighborhoods. Um, that was something that the, that, that Mayor Duggan um, instituted when he came in and, and took, took office, which is to ensure that all of these communities have, you know, three representatives from the department of neighborhood. They have two, the deputy and a, a uh, and the director, who their primary focus is on relationship building, identifying, you know, uh, down to the block, who are some of the key folks that that would be important to make sure that their their voices are not missed. So that's a that's a key piece. Um, the the second point of all of this is that you're right. When it comes to you know, especially a major metro like the city of Detroit, there's a lot of different languages that are spoken, and you know, and and the community and the culture of those. Uh, respective communities are all different. And so you want to be as respectful as possible. So what we've done is that, yes, we have all of our materials are, are depending on a neighborhood, we make sure that our material, our materials have been printed out um, respecting those languages. So if we have to have it in Arabic or we have it in Spanish, um, you know, we can, we can do that and we can accommodate that. But the, but one of the pieces that is critical and not every community can do this is that, Folks want to see themselves reflected in their government, right? And and you know, and here in the city of Detroit, we can do that. But there are those sub subsets of population that, you know, we definitely need to do better. Um, and so I think we're we're trying to push towards that way of just making sure that, you know, whoever is coming to speak to you, you know, it could be you could be of any race, any any color, creed, but you need cultural competency first. If you can't, if you don't understand you know, my, my culture or ha at least have a, a level of respect for me to explain to you how things go here and how we, you might be successful with your approach, then, then you're going to fail if you don't, if you can't do that. And the second piece is if you, if, if folk, folks feel like they're reflected in, in, in the government or in the planning organization or in a, you know, the, the group that is coming to speak to them, the, that's a, a barrier that, you know, it's still a barrier because you got to build trust. But it's a it lowers the barrier because they're saying, oh wow, they were thoughtful, they thought about this, um, or it's just a part of their community or a comp company or city culture to make sure that we're reflected, and that that goes a long way. 
So the three of us, let me follow this up. Sorry, Ben, let me jump in. Oh, go for it. You know, the three of us work all over the country. Um, and we work with communities all over. And, the, you know, one of the things that we're seeing more and more of is that in communities where there's, I would say more diversity, but where there is diversity, you know, there are certain communities where, you know, 97%, you know, are Caucasian. But there are other communities where you're looking at, you know, 60% Caucasian, 40% African-American, yet you look at the, you know, the, the leadership of the boards of, say, a Main Street or a Downtown Development Authority or whatever it is, is 100% white, or there's the one African-American person. You know, what, what advice would you give to communities who may have, you know, a good percentage of their community being diverse? And yet those folks aren't, aren't, you know, in leadership positions and maybe because they're not business owners or that they're not part of that normal pool that we're used to talking to. What, you know, what kind of advice would you give to, to communities who are looking to, to, you know, be more reflective of their community? Yeah, sure. I, I think, you know, one well, of the well, things- I, I think what you're saying is what would all black people say here? Can you speak? Now, now, Jermaine, go ahead and speak on, on behalf of your entire and solve and solve you know all of these years and centuries of issues. No, no, no. I I, I do think that. Hey, hold on, Jermaine. Just remember, we're after this. I'm going to ask you to speak on behalf of all millennials. So, just... yeah. <laughs> that, you, as you know, that's happened many times in, in previous roles. So, so, so essentially, I, I mean, I, I think from from my personal from my personal perspective, and and I think that one of the things that often that often happens um, is and I, I lived in, you know, I lived in East Lansing and East Lansing is, you know, predominantly white community, but during the school year, it's pretty diverse, right? Um, but, mm -hmm. the, but the leadership there at the city and uh, on the council is not always reflective of that. But, but what, it, what it requires is really a commitment from, you know, from the city or from those respective organizations to say, <clears throat> we need to, are we communicating the best way that we can, the opportunity that's available for folks to be involved. I mean, oftentimes, you know, and there's, you know, you can sit back and look at, at government uh, from the federal level and other places and people hear things and, and they're like, oh, politics, I'm not trying to get involved in that. Um, or they just essentially self-remove themselves from that process sometimes. Uh, or quite frankly, there are organizations where because you don't take into account, you know, the, the African-American population or you don't take into account the Latino population or the Arab population, they all they look at that as like oh they, they don't want us there right um, so so you need to so my my suggestion to folks would be if there are organizations whether they're you know the the um, you know Latino Chamber or Hispanic Chamber of Commerce or all these others that you can reach those folks who are who are business owners but then there are other subset organizations that you might need to kind of figure out what exists in your community so then you can reach out to those organizations as well because the assumption is always that the larger business owners, um, they can speak to that community, right? Because they might be, you know, they might be reflective of that race or culture or whatever, but it's not always the case. Um, because if you're looking at it from a socioeconomic standpoint, if you have a community that, that has a larger population that struggles and needs revitalization, those folks who have already been established as business owners and all that, they don't always you know, throw the ladder back. They don't always like extend that hand to say, you know, hey, come on and get involved in this conversation because sometimes just the day-to-day -day operation of their business is too much to, to be able to, to, to step into that conversation, right? For a lot of folks. 
And um, and as as somebody who's been uh, you know one one of the few African Americans on on a in a particular office or a profession, the the stress that it takes for for me of like you know speaking for all uh, all black people is it's like it just put you on the spot to have you do. <laughs> right right it's like is is it can be stressful to to a lot of folks from no matter your background um you know and and i've heard a, a lot of my female colleagues say the same thing it's like i i can't speak to all of that um this is my perspective um but the the additional the additional thing is 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 when there's a crisis is when that relationship tends to be picked up Right, like it's like, oh, Jermaine, we have this issue here. We've gotten some negative feedback, but we've had some issues. Like, how can you help us facilitate that? It's like, I don't want to come in and (laughs) (laughs) because because the unspoken language is all right. Now you brought now you brought the black guy in to help, like you know, exactly stuff. And I I uh, can help you by having talked to me three months ago. (laughs) Right, right. If 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 I would have been engaged like like you engaged anyone else throughout this process. We, you know, the, the, the issue and crisis that comes up later on, um, you know, you can handle that because there are, there are ways to, to communicate in that cultural competency piece of just understanding, you know, the respect levels and understanding, you know, who, who makes decisions and, you know, all of those types of things can be addressed early on. You can avoid some of that. So that's, that's my perspective. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the best things I, I, I saw a TED talk on, diversity and they you know it's it's one of those things where the way that they framed it I had never really heard it um kind of taken so straight on but he said diversity is almost the opposite of efficiency the the way to be efficient is to have everybody who thinks the exact same way about something because then there's no friction, then there's no discussion, then there's no different perspectives. And he gave this really interesting example of ask people where they keep their ketchup. And they're like, if you talk to a middle-aged white person in America, chances are the ketchup's going to be in the door of their refrigerator. If you talk to a uh, Latino, it might be in the counter right next to their salsa. If you talk to a lower income um, African-American in rural South, it might be in the cupboard next to the, the vinegar, you know? Yep. And it's, it's this interesting dynamic where all the answers are right, but none of them are, you know, you, you wouldn't right. know right. those unless you took the time to listen to different, you know, the, the different yeah. So. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this too, is that, you know, we are some, a lot of times we got to check our own egos, right? I mean, I think even with, with myself uh, coming into certain spaces, like I, I've worked in um, a lot of rural parts of Michigan going out and having a conversation with folks. And I came in with a whole host of like, you know, of, of my ideas of what those communities would, would be like. Um, and, you know, uh, and, and, and so one of the things that I, that I was always sure in is my expertise, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you're uh, oftentimes when you're going into new communities or you're going into different cities to work, our, our go-to is we are experts on X, Y, and Z, or we have a lot of knowledge on X, Y, and Z. And so we lean on that pretty heavily. That where, whereas the majority of the situations that, I, that, that we go into, what we need to kind of approach it as, or I suggest we approach it as is, with a level of humility. It's like, I am an expert in these, these areas, 
but I'm not an expert in your city, right? I'm not an expert in your neighborhood. I'm not an expert of, right. of your block um, and all of those things. And so when you, when you approach from that area of, of humility, it, it kind of, it changes the perspective because that doesn't diminish your amazing accomplishments and getting awards from, you know, Main Street America, like, you know, all of these things, it doesn't diminish that. Um, what it does though, is it, it makes you, it puts you in a position to be relatable to the folks that you're going in to assist, not like determined for them, but to assist with them making their community the best that they would like to see it to be. And so I think in all of these neighborhoods across the board, that is, that's really, that's really the approach that I've been encouraging younger planners and younger community development uh, specialists and economic development folks to, to really consider going in there. It doesn't matter, you know, the, the demographic makeup of any of these communities. What matters is how do you approach it? Do you approach it as I'm the expert, you're welcome? Or do you approach it from the standpoint of like, hey, I, you know, um, you have a great neighborhood or you have a neighborhood that, that looks pretty good. Um, tell me about what, what happened here and what's happening and, and what do you think you need? And then we use our expertise to facilitate that, right? Right. Yeah, I, diversity is such a funny thing too that that it's you know become this almost catchy or, or trendy word to to throw out of you know that means good or something and and um, yeah I mean we certainly cities would be better if they were better integrated but I try to look at it from the standpoint of somebody relocating um, there's a neighborhood near here that that I mean it's a huge uh, Indian neighborhood it's like well if I was moving to Pittsburgh from India. That is certainly where I would want to live. I would not want to live somewhere else. I mean, it would be nice to be somewhere where, where you were familiar with the culture, where you had um, a lot of ties. And, and so I get that from, from the resident's perspective. And then, you know, and I'll occasionally catch these sort of snippets of conversation that say like uh, at school pickup where, you know, the, the white lady will be like, well, I wish this neighborhood was a little more diverse. And like, lady, you can move <laughs> to any number of very diverse neighborhoods like what are you getting at you know it's kind of like well wouldn't it be nice if we just sprinkled in some some other people in here and it's it's just kind of this yeah and like who do you want which people do you want sprinkled in do you want you know economic diversity income diversity are you looking for i think we all know diversity that, I, I think we all know that a lot of times when people say they want more diversity it just means they want a thai restaurant you know like they, <laughs> There's some different <laughs> dynamics. Well, I, I tell you yeah, what. Yeah, and, and that's and that's usually I'm, I'm glad you that's that's usually how folks think about diversity is like we, we they want parts of a culture that, that is accessible to them where Definitely. they don't actually have to fully interact with those parts of you know the other parts of the culture. The other parts, right. Right, right. right. It's like, exactly. you know, I, I've I've been to I've been to a lot of great places in, in, in the south and and uh, my wife is my wife is from Texas. And, you know, you know, I going to like the, the Southern restaurants down there, you see it's, it's diverse, right? Like you see a lot of people come like, oh man, this is amazing food. But, and, and the same thing with churches on Sunday, right? <laughs> Sometimes. Um, but then, you know, that transition during the week is we're typically, you know, back into our neighborhoods where, where that, that, you know, interaction with other cultures are, are very limited. That's why, you know, one of the, the, the cities that I've, you know, and it's, it's, a uh, uh, it's Toronto, where it seems to me where you have these bases of, you know, bases of culture, but the, the, but the city itself is, is pretty well, like folks live everywhere because you feel comfortable. They feel that their culture is not accepted just because, you know, you know, of, of the food or the clothing that they bring to the table, 
but there's actually an acknowledgement and appreciation of, of their culture that's being brought to the table that's, that's reflected in government, it's reflected in business ownership, and um, it's, it's just, it's reflected in how they celebrate, you know, those, those communities too. And I think, you know, on the diversity side of things, that to me, it, it is one of those phrases that have become extremely watered down. Um, but the, the, the ultimate goal of what I'm looking, what I've been pushing is cultural competency. I, my wife is a social worker. So, you know, this, that's a term that I picked up from her, which is, I don't want you to just, you know, say you're respectful of, of my culture. I want you to understand it as much as I understand your culture and, and appreciate it, right. And appreciate the parts of it that you, that you can but realize like I'm just the, as much of a human being as you are. So I'm gonna show you that respect, you show that respect to me and then we'll move accordingly. Right, that's great. Well, I tell you what, I, I want to um, ask a question that brings us a little bit into kind of the, the topic of right now. Uh, Shannon Johnson had, and I wanna kind of throw this towards uh, Joe and Jermaine specifically, cause I know some of the stuff going on there in Michigan. But um, the question is, on a COVID-related note, um, how are states dealing with revolt against governor lockdown? Um, you know, obviously, we've got representation on the call today from uh, southern states that are opening up in a variety of different ways, restaurants opening, salons opening throughout Georgia and, and some of the other southern states, while... We've got Midwest and, and Northern states and, and Western states that maybe are still um, have, having active stay-at-home orders. So um, can you all talk a little bit, especially from a Michigan perspective, about what you're seeing? I, I, think, the, I think it is fair to say um, for everybody that's watching today, I don't think anybody needs to argue the fact that we understand that people need to be safe. And we understand that the economy is important. So kind of the polar arguments, everybody sees those sides. But can you all share a little bit about what's going on in the ground, on the ground in a state where you're seeing kind of an active revolt against the, the effort to stay at home? Well, we saw some today, and Jermaine, please feel free to jump in. I mean, even today, I mean, I'm pretty sure at this point we lead, we lead the nation in crazy. Um, Man, Florida's going to argue that. You know, yeah, I gotta do is, yeah, Google Florida man versus Michigan man. It's a whole different yeah, story. Yeah, Florida man is gonna win every time. I live yes, down there. Yes, he is, he is, that's for sure. <laughs> but I mean, lately, I mean, we're seeing a huge pushback. And, and the hard part about this is trying to figure out, and again, it's that, Ben, I think you framed it the correct way. There are people who are concerned about businesses, you know, they're concerned about livelihood of small businesses. I mean, I've had this on our own, the same argument in my own family, which is, you know, concerned about small business on one hand, concerned about life on the other. But we have seen a, a real tight lockdown here in Michigan. And the reason being is that we have one of the largest outbreaks in the country. Um, and I think that there's just there's a struggle with that. And I and I can't help but wonder, you know, you know, reading some of the stuff that I've seen online and from credible news sources, I want to make sure I clarify that. Um, that, that, you know, some of the stuff is just being fanned from the outside. You know, there's, you know, a lot of the political movements are all astroturfed where, you know, you're seeing, you know, it's all one, you know, domain owner who owns all these different websites for this different stuff. But that being said, you know, I do think, you know, we've seen some, some concern and we're starting to see some loosening because I do believe that that's been heard uh, to an extent, you know, um, the last order, two, two orders ago, you know, outlawed, oh, what was it? Um, yeah, 
landscape companies and, you know, selling, you know, the big box stores couldn't sell plants and that kind of stuff. So it was, you know, golf courses were reasserted as closed. And then last week, the governor said, all right, we can do that kind of stuff. Now you can go out and golf. You can, you know, you can go do this stuff as long as you're still socially distanced. And we're still, I think, far behind, you know, I think Georgia's way on the other end of that spectrum where I think, you know, they've kind of maybe opened up a little too soon. But I think really, you know, a hard part is, is listening to science on this. And I think the thing I'm the most concerned about, frankly, is what happens, you know, if we open up, and even if it's a little bit, you know, California, we were seeing this down in California, where California opened the beaches, people flock to the beaches, and then they close the beaches again. So what happens when we get to a point where, you know, hopefully this continues to go down and down and down, but what happens if we get to a point where we start loosening things up, and then it rises back up, and then we got locked back up, locked back down. I mean, we're seeing this kind of craziness right now, and we're seeing a downward trend. What happens if that goes back up? So I, I, that's my personal concern, but yeah. I, I, you know, I'm seeing a lot of that in terms of the pushback. Jermaine, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. My, I mean, my, my major concern is this, is I think that, um, I, I think that it, a lot of America sees this as COVID as more of an, like, like sometimes we view crime as like an only an urban, you know, large city issue. Right. Um, so I think in the, in, in the state of Michigan, that plays a little bit into it as well. And my fear of that is that, you know, those communities that haven't been hit by this, you know, the smaller rural communities that haven't been hit by this, um, will once we kind of, once they, you know, the, the distribution networks start opening back up and, and folks are, you know, moving and interacting with, with each other a whole lot more, that COVID is going to, that as, as hard as it hit urban America, it's going to begin to hit rural America. And here in the state of Michigan, one of my ultimate concerns is that there aren't enough health services in those outer outer communities, right? And so I can see from the governor's standpoint, at least with you know conversations that I've had, that, that there's that's a part of the thought process. But you know, the the other part is the economy side, right? Like you want, you know, we're we're just as much dependent on on um, you know here in Detroit on what's happening in in rural uh, Michigan in northern Michigan than, than they are on us, right? Like, and so we want to make sure that we're all safe as we move forward in this process. But the the economy side, you know, really honestly, I mean, it, it's going to, to me, it's going to take a while to ramp up. And I would much rather, as opposed to just kind of take the cap off of everything, slowly transition. But I think that part, just as much as the health side that we want to get research and knowledge and, and all that on, I think we really need to, as the state of Michigan, I'm um, in the governor's office, really needs to listen to you know the rural communities and see like what are the 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 challenges right now from an economic standpoint that you're seeing that are impacting you the most you know crops that are being thrown away you have you know the the um and and other issues like you know with with meat i read yesterday it was like um you know the meat the meat chain um is like you know seeing uh, uh kinks in it that might take months to work out right if we if we aren't um, all on the same page. So I see all of it. I, I think particularly with, with me, I'd love to see, you know, someone really take that deep dive and present what it looks like for these communities and then also lay out the health component too of what that damage might look like, but also where are the resources for if it does hit, thank God, hopefully it doesn't, but if it does, here's how we would have to approach that from a public health standpoint. And the last plan I saw that was released, I believe it was yesterday or even late, late the day before, 
was more of a regional based reopening. So if you look at the map of Michigan and where all the where the outbreaks are, there's you know large concentrations in the more metro areas. But you know what the the plan that I've seen comes out and says, all right, we can look at the UP differently than we can you know northern Michigan versus southeast Michigan versus sorry metro Detroit. Yeah. I hate the term southeast Michigan, but you know metro Detroit. Metro and then, Detroit you know, sounds a whole lot better. Well, yeah. it, it's true, but anyways. But you know, looking at more of a regional perspective, I think makes a lot more sense than it does just saying we're going to base everything off of how the UP is doing or how Detroit's doing or how Grand Rapids is doing. By doing it in a more regional basis, I think it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I think the test that the I know this is kind of to some folks has become kind of a red herring, but but I think one of the things that I want to kind of bring light to is that here in the city of Detroit, you know, we are testing more than any other city nationally right now, right? So, so a lot of those numbers are driven by the fact that we've been able to identify people who have, you know, who have are asymptomatic or have the issue. And a lot of uh, Metro Detroit comes in and drives into Detroit for those, those tested exams. Um, so we're, we're I, I was, I volunteered at the, at the testing site um, and I have colleagues that are out there almost every day. And we're, we're getting folks who are driving in from Lansing and driving in from other places because they don't have access to, to easy, quick testing to, to see if they have COVID or they don't. And so, you know, I, I want, I, I want, you know, folks, the listeners to, to, to know that, but also to say these other areas um, of the state that are, are clamoring to be open, I want them to open too, but I also want them to, to live. And so I think the, the testing component, if they can, if we can find a way to extend that to them, I think it makes it a much more easy call uh, for the governor and for mayors everywhere to be like, yeah, well, let's let's reopen. We've tested this many people. You know, we're a town of 5,000. We're a town of 15,000. We've tested X amount of number of people. We're good. Let's go. Um, I think that that could help in the long run, too. There's this other interesting, I mean, it's it's a doesn't seem like a huge issue, but when you reopen and you have these business owners who are, are clamoring to to go back to business. And, and yeah, I think we all applaud that drive, but they also possibly don't have access to a steady supply of cleaning supplies. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, you can, can they get product? Can they, can they deliver the product? But then that big question really is, can they also make sure that the the space is, is clean? And I will say one of the things that really impresses me is I feel like I have seen some amazing um, resources that have come out all across the, the country. West Alabama Chamber of Commerce put together an amazing um, kind of reentry guide. I know Kirsten shared that with me, Joe. Um, you know, I think that some of the stuff that's coming out of there is fantastic. Uh, our friend Jay Schlinsog has put together a really great resource called Reopen Main Street that just is a, a place that business owners can go and be thinking about best practices. I, and believe it or not, even when you start to look at, at industries like the, the health and beauty industry, the, the Professional Beauty Association has put together a great resource at going through and thinking about those interaction points. And, and it really kind of brought an interesting point to us where sanitary practices in America have become invisible. And, um, and I think one of the things that we're going to see is we're going to see this interesting transition where a lot of those invisible practices are going to become visible again, whether it is 
you know, if you do go um, and get your hair cut, you know, it might be that the stylist is cleaning the chair in front of you while you watch, you know, and I think just being willing to talk about safety practices, being willing to ask questions about safety practices and share all that, I think that's going to be one of our, our cultural changes that that kind of becomes a much longer term impact in the way that that business is done. So Ben, I know I know you're the master of community branding, but I think we need to figure out a way to make sanitation sexy again. I think that's what we got to figure out. <laughs> Let's do it. I'm Clean is the new dirty, right? Clean is the new dirty. I love it. <laughs> You've done it. I'm still thinking about the meat chains uh, uh, Jermaine was talking about and getting hungry. Man, <laughs> tell me about it, man. I'm like, I haven't, I haven't had a, a, a quality steak in some time, man. And, you know, so I'm, I'm hurting over here, man. That in my hair, my hair, I cut my hair, but uh, my barber Looking does good. a much Look, better job. So, <laughs> you know, it, and Josh Adams up in Owasso, it just kind of threw in and, and was talking about how finding mace, uh, face masks and hand sanitizers, um, you know, trying to go through that process of, of that might be an interesting role that uh, the Main Street organization can play in the community. Um, we kind of had this interesting discovery uh, 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 last week where um, our local school district realized that there were cases upon cases of hand sanitizers and and Kleenexes and stuff locked up in unused school buildings. And, um, you know, so essentially what happened was they figured out a way that they're working in conjunction with the local Main Street program to take those resources and then make those resources available for free to our business community so that as some of those non-essential businesses start to open back up, then they have this opportunity to to have resources to make sure that it's a clean and safe environment. So uh, Arkansas just yesterday and, and uh, uh, I'll give a shout out to Greg, to Greg down in Arkansas. We've been going back and forth all, all afternoon a little bit, um, but the governor had just announced a new program where they were going to help pay for, it was a grant program to help pay for PPE for businesses. And unfortunately I think they, they launched it too soon. Um, like it, it literally was a miscommunication because of the remote working and, and, but it like it, they, you know, they had $3 million of requests like that. I mean, right. I think that, you know, one of the things, if we want to be able to help local businesses restart, then our, you know, local units of government, our Main Street organizations, finding a way to kind of marshal some of those resources and, and, you know, whether it's joint buying or granting or however it is, you know, I think that's going to probably be the, that next frontier of how do we help them? Because this is all an increased cost to be passed along. Yeah, you know, so how do we help them kind of shorten that frame? And don't get me wrong, I think, I think that, consumers are willing to pay a little bit more in order to have that but there's going to have to be this ramp up period where you know we're going to have to probably figure out a way to kind of help do that in a more cost effective manner and then kind of make it go from there yeah 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 i think that would be a very a, a, a great thing to see done um as well as like those in-between shops if there's you know kind of one of those hand sanitizer where somebody just walking down the street can mm-hmm. you know uh, uh can can cleanse their hands and those types of things is going to be very very important um, but but one of the, the issues here in Detroit that we saw right away was getting access to, to PPE. Um, and uh, and also, I don't know if this happened everywhere. <laughs> I saw it on TV a little bit, but it really happened here. There was a run on toilet paper, man. I mean, like I've never seen before in my entire life. So 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 having access to some of those things that 
you know, quite frankly, like you said, are, are kind of invisible. You're like, yeah, of course, this place is going to have paper towels and toilet paper and those types of things. But um, in this, in this, uh, you know, day and age, like those are critical things that business groups could could definitely focus on and be supportive of businesses with. Yeah. Well, and I, I want to shout real quick. I was I sat through most of a webinar yesterday on community development block grants. So if you ever have trouble sleeping, I highly encourage finding a webinar on community development block grant and just kind of let it lull you to sleep. But anyways, the whole thing was on CDBG CV. So the, the whole COVID, you know, response to that. So states are getting extra billions of dollars to do that. And one of the pastors was actually uh, Bridget Kelch, who's a uh, uh, recovering Main Street manager in Missouri. I just posted, you know, that, that uh, you know, they're seeing some of that in Missouri too. So it's using some of that CDBG and trying to tap into that from that state level of trying to get that down to the local level and using it for those types of things. That's great. Now, I, I tell you, we've got about uh, 10 minutes left. And Jermaine, I want to see if I can weave together kind of the first line of questioning about engagement in uh, voices that maybe we don't. And then it's kind of interesting because I feel like a little bit of the conversation about COVID-19 helped to expose some of the differences that we see between the urban environment and the rural environment. Um, I know that that being in Detroit, obviously, you're, you're in a urban environment. Um, in your experience, is there is there anything that uh, changes or, or is different about engagement in minority populations or underheard voices in rural communities? Is it a, is it a challenge that like, are there dynamics that change because of the nature of, of the lack of density or does it, does it take a pretty similar effort? It's just that trust building and and kind of that that dialogue starting with the population. Yeah, sure. I think I think it's pretty it's pretty similar. Um, you know, it's it's when I've when I had to do outreach in like places like Grand Rapids or um, you know going up to Marquette or all those things. It's like it it, it all comes down to establishing that trust. Um, okay. But one 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 thing that I would say is that the you know how you you handle your engagement is is going to be and I think this is across the board, has to be in multiple ways, right? I think a lot of, uh, a lot of times I've seen cities do it like, well, we have this meeting at one o'clock every Wednesday, Thursday. We're going to, you know, increase it by one more day at the same time. And we're going to take whoever comes in, right? Where, where in most of these communities, if you're understanding the demographic, like, you know, maybe seniors can make those meetings if transportation is not an issue. Um, so I think, in, in across the board with engagement, we need to be thinking about one, if we really want that full engagement, is there a transportation obstacle? Is there a, a childcare obstacle? Um, is there a time of day obstacle? Like if you're working in a town that, that, is, that is really heavy on manufacturing and you, know, you want folks from the, the, the majority of the shift is a, the third shift, the swing shift or whatever, um, are more kind of like the younger employees. And then that, that first shift is the older employee that have more seniority and all, you know, you, do you factor that in uh, to ensure that you're getting a good cross-section of, of people to be engaged in? So I think that's across the board in any of these communities. Um, and I do think the other piece is, you know, churches are, are, are valuable uh, relationship building. I think when it comes to African-Americans, for whatever reason, it's, it's kind of overused some. Um, because if, if, you know, as somebody who was raised uh, Kojic, I was in church like four or five days a week. 
Uh, so that's for me, you would have been able to, you would have been able to hit me, uh, you know, with some questions like during that period of time, but there, but now over time, that's become less of a space where a lot of African-Americans um, are, are, are venturing for a host of reasons, right? Um, so it's, it's, while church is important, you need to look at those other layers. Is there a community center? Is there a barbershop? Is there a, you know, uh, um, a, a, like a pool hall or, you know, there are a lot of different ways, and this is across races, across cultures, that you can reach additional people, but are you committed to getting that level of engagement Absolutely. Uh, because you can't, you can do it, uh, but it takes time and it takes effort. And so a lot of us, um, when it, when it comes to the time, we all have the same 24 hours, but the amount of effort is, uh, what, what tends to lack, uh, Absolutely. From, from a lot of, you know, it's, it's funny. It's, um, I have found that late night in waffle houses and oh, early morning in McDonald's and Hardee's, and you get a <laughs> lot of of really interesting thoughts that don't seem to come out to public meetings. And yeah, yeah, I have some interesting stories from from Waffle Houses in, in the <laughs> South, man. It's uh, <laughs> I bet, I bet it's one of my favorite places, man. They're in um, Shoney's, you know. It really is a portal to a different place, that's for sure. <laughs> it, it, it is, especially um, especially after midnight. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I tell you what, we've got about five minutes left. And, and Jermaine, first of all, I want to thank you so much for coming on and, and just chatting with us and sharing some of your insight. Um, it's been a, a great conversation. And, and I really love as we start to think over the last seven weeks of us doing this, it's been amazing how um, how the the nature and, and kind of the, the conversation that we've had have really taken on a life of their own. There's been very little redundancy. And, and we've been able to dig into these great kind of holistic topics that are important to everybody that's that's joining us. Um, but we've got something kind of exciting that we want to share with everybody. And, um, you know, Joe and Jeff and I got together seven weeks ago and decided we wanted to just have a conversation to help all of you. And, um, and we've been thrilled with the support and we've been thrilled with the the feedback and the the comments and and really the following that uh, we've got. Our page has 450 followers already, and we've got uh, hundreds of people that watch the happy hour uh, every week. So knowing that because of the crisis, um, the the national conference that we all normally gather at, the conference that Detroit was the host of several years ago, National Main Streets Conference. Uh, I was there. Unfortunately, the, the conference is not going to happen this year, and um, we're not going to be able to gather. So we decided that we would like to organize a virtual conference. And um, the, the third week of May, we're going to offer what we're calling in the theme of the downtown happy hour, uh, the three-day bender. And uh, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to see yeah. if we can put together three days of, um, of sessions and panel discussions. And uh, each day will end with kind of a curated happy hour uh, with a speaker. So we're excited to, to kind of launch that idea out there. Um, those of you that are watching, make sure to follow the page. We're going to be posting on the page and, and asking for uh, comments and thoughts about uh, the kind of topics that you'd like us for, to cover. We have a couple more shows between now and then, and we, we hope to announce each week some of the speakers that we're going to line up. And, and, um, and I think that it's going to be just our way to 
to kind of gift back to this Main Street community because those of you that are on the ground have been really just, you've been killing it. You know, you've been working so hard and giving everything you've got to support your, your community and support your businesses. So we're just, we're excited to be able to give something back to you all. And, um, and we'd love to have you just shape it so that it is as, as useful to you as it can be. So guys, do y'all have anything y'all want to throw out? I, I think, um, you know, just talk a little bit about what your thoughts are and, and how we want to move with that. Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, right. I mean, you kind of summed it up well, but, uh, yeah, I think people miss getting together. People miss content. That's what we've tried to provide, but we can certainly do better. There's so many great people out there with incredible ideas and, and thoughts that they can share how to, to help Main Street. And so, um, yeah, just a nice opportunity to, to try to help replace some of what people will be missing this May. And we might even end it up on the third night with a dance. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I like Only it. if we can get John, Krasz John Krasinski to, uh, to DJ. Oh, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Yeah, I gotta tell you, I, I'm excited about the idea. When we talked about this a while, you know, a few weeks ago, we thought, man, this is crazy. There's no way that this can work. But you know what? This whole thing has been crazy. Uh, you know, we are in we are in completely abnormal times, and you know, it, it never ceases to amaze me every week as we start to wind down one of these episodes. You know, the flood of thank yous of, of folks. You know, who I've seen people who don't even comment during the show who will repost like when we start to promote the show a couple days in advance, you know, people that, you know, are just saying that this is the highlight of their week. And, you know, yeah. first of all, you people need better lives. Um, but, <laughs> but outside of that, we really do appreciate the support. And I certainly, you know, I speak for all of us here, you know, that, you know, we really are going to miss getting together in Dallas and it's unfortunate we can't do that this year. And we're really looking forward to Boston next year. But in the meantime, we really think this is a really good opportunity for us still to get together, to share some ideas, you know, and just, you know, we're working out some of the details in the format, but we're hopeful that we can get everybody. We want to make sure it's late enough where the West Coasters can, can participate and early enough for the East Coasters aren't going to cut into a lot of the dinner time or anything like that. But we're trying to make sure that we're going to put something together that's the value. And it's really kind of a gift from us and everyone who's going to put this thing on is a gift from us to, to all of you who are working kind of on the front lines of all this stuff. So I really want to say thank you. And we're really, we're really looking forward to doing this. And in addition, we've got a, a weird, um, weird occurrence where we actually already know who next week's guest is. Yes, true. Um, <laughs> first time we've ever done that before. So, Joe, <laughs> do you want to do you want to share a little bit about how unbelievably together we are this week? <laughs> yeah, this is uh, shockingly, I and mean, I don't have the bio in front of me, but if folks have known uh, Ilyana Proust. Uh, and Ileana is a former uh, VP at the Urban Land Institute, and, and, I'm, and I'm forgetting the name of the nonprofit that she works for. Jermaine, if you know that offhand, she wrote not offhand, book. but she was with Smart Growth and stuff for a while. Yeah, she was, she was yeah. Smart Growth. I would say, and what she's done a lot is she's a huge advocate for uh, downtown and small town manufacturing, and she really is a believer in Main Street manufacturing. Is actually, I think, the phrase that she uses the most. But it's about creating things locally, and you know, creating more sustainable local economies. And I think that you know, as we look at this new era that we're going to be entering into, entering into the more local we can have our supply chains, the better off we're going to be in a lot of cases. So uh, super stoked to have for, uh, for next week. Awesome. Awesome. And Jermaine, thank you so much for taking the time. And when, when we're allowed to start traveling again, I would love to uh, love to head up to, to Detroit and see if you can show me a place that has better macaroni and cheese than slows. <laughs> so I, I, 
I got a place for you, man. I got nice. a place for you. Nice. By the way, we got you know our audience has our back. Elizabeth Chase said she's with Recast City, and I totally blanked on that. And Ileana, because she said she was going to log Recast on this week okay. and watch, so she's probably mortified that I've already already butchered that. But she's with Recast City, and she was actually uh, one of the keynotes at the North Carolina uh, uh, conference this year as well. So, awesome. folks, awesome. North Carolina know who she is. Guys, I I just want to say just thank you for having me on. Um, it's been a thrill. Uh, to, to watch you guys over the last couple of weeks and, and be supportive of that. And uh, moving forward, man, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be tuned in. So I think uh, folks who listen to my show and folks who have been tuned in today, it's your first time, you, you're, you're tuned in to a great group of guys. Uh, and I look forward to seeing what, what happens with this three-day bender. Count me in, man. Awesome. Sounds good. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll uh, see you again, 5 p.m. Eastern next week. Happy Here's hour. Thanks again, brother. Good to see you. Yep. Thanks.